Welcome to the KVB Review Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Davis, as always, and this is episode 19 of season three. And we've literally got a very special interview for you this time around as we talk to the recipient of this year's Special Achievement Award, Johnny Gray. We handed in the trophy at the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards up in Liverpool a couple of weeks ago, so I thought I'd dust off this interview I did with him a couple of years ago, where we walk through his career highlights and really get to hear him talk about his philosophy and approach to design at length. It's a really interesting discussion, and to put it in context, we spoke at a residential weekend for the Bucks University Kitchen Design degree, where he was lecturing and curating the content for the students. It was, of course, all pre-lockdowns. But first... Entries are open for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2022. Yes, I know we've just given out the 2021 trophies, but we're starting all over again for 2022, ahead of the event in March alongside the KBB Show. We've got kitchen and bathroom categories for designers, for retailers, for installers and suppliers, so there's something for everyone. And, as always, it's totally free to enter. The closing date is November the 16th, and you can get all the info at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the 2021 Special Achievement Award. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of Hans Grower, I'm delighted to announce the Special Achievement Award for 2021 goes to Johnny Gray. Actually, my first experience really was making things with wood, which was um, uh, restoring a gypsy caravan. My mother, when I was five, bought this little country cottage, which is actually a little with a farm building attached. And um, they had far too many children. And, and there we were in this sort of rustic bliss uh, in, just in the summer. I think they wanted us to, to do something. And as it happens, my father told me many years um, after my mother had died that I was conceived in a gypsy caravan. Maybe, a bit, maybe a, bit, a bit too much yeah. um, information here, but as a kind of rite of passage, we would really fix this up. This was our bedroom. The, the cottage only had two bedrooms, so I actually slept in this gypsy caravan for many years. And we, I fell in love with the detail, even the scale, I think, of the whole thing, the, sort of, the charm of it. And so, yeah, I think uh, that gave me some basic skills in woodwork. Then uh, when I was at school, I was um, quite a kind of uh, difficult student academically, a grim, a grim boarding school. My great passion was pottery. Mm. So I knew very, very early on that I needed to make things. And I think the, the wellspring of design is really, you've got to love making things. You've got to love objects, uh, which turn out to be now perfectly okay, psychologically speaking, so I'm told. Good for your relationships. But no, I mean, I think that then, then there's this wonderful moment where my father said, look, you're, you're not going to art school. You're going to study architecture. And actually, I think he made a really good point. I'm really pleased I studied architecture. And I went to this a school called the Architectural Association, which was the the oldest architectural school in the country, but also the most radical, the most independent. It wasn't part of the state sector at that point. And the great extraordinary experience at that time was nobody knew what architecture was. Was it technology? Was it Buckminster Fuller? Was it uh, mystical radicalism? You know, what was it? And this very inadequate public schoolboy turns up to this hotbed of left-wing thinking, trying to work out what the hell was going on. And it's left me with a fascination uh, with ideas ever since. So that combined with um, this great love of furniture and making things, 
And the, the sort of the food mix, as it were, was this aunt of mine who was a food writer who had also quite strong ideas about food and design. Set up a kitchen shop when I was just when I went boarding school because unfortunately she had a stroke and she couldn't, um, she'd lost a sense of taste. And the pub, this was kept from the public, they didn't know. Elizabeth David, this is. Yeah, this yeah. is Elizabeth David. That was my first port of call when I was um, a young person. So you add all this some background into the mix and you start to listen to yourself about what you really want to do. A friend of mine comes along and says he wants a kitchen. And so we built this Gothic kitchen and it was the most mad, crazy project, but tremendous fun. So I stumbled on this idea of using furniture as a way of trying to make this kitchen work because you simply couldn't build a fitted kitchen into it. And the idea of the Gothic was each piece of furniture was a, had a different sort of mood and atmosphere. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I made quite a bit of this furniture, you know, really not very well. There was a sort of funny moment when Harper's Magazine a features editor wanted to write a story about kitchens. And God knows why, but she turned up for dinner, candlelight with a kind of marinated meal with kind of shrimps and prawns inside that sort of coffee soup. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this woman thought, but she was clearly interested. And she asked me to write an article about kitchen design. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to formalize some of the ideas. That got then looked at by other people. Um, like now, this is, the, this is the, the sort of... The headline of which looms large in your legend, I suspect, isn't it? It's the, why, what is the fixation with fitted kitchens? kitchens yeah, I, I, that's really true. So what happened was, there, there I was with this kind of rather um, over-the-top intellectual interest in ideas. So I wrote a manifesto on design. Yeah. Um, and you haven't and stopped there, really. called In Place of Modernism. No, no, yeah, quite, exactly. But a very charming journalist from the Sunday Times had heard I'd done a kitchen for um, a well-known yacht company the owner of it and she said could you write a story and I said no I don't really want a story and she said no no you do want a story and actually what she did was she listened very carefully to this combination of rather crazy ideas and sort of intellectual thinking and she put together this incredible article I think I'm right in saying it appeared in the look pages in August 1980 I would say I had probably two or three thousand letters within a matter of six weeks mm. because I'd hit on the zeitgeist this idea of you know why this awful fixation with fitted kitchens turned out to be an, something that the, the I mean that, the that, was, that was 40 years ago obviously so what, yeah. <clears throat> what was the issue that you had with them at that stage with kitchens yeah um, look what had happened was that the, um, the German kitchen company had basically systemized quite a lot of aspects of kitchens and they had to rebuild Germany really fast after the war. They'd standardized plant sizes. Uh, they had the Frankfurt kitchen in the back of their mind. But what they'd really done is unitize things. And it was all about making um, things easy to install, easy to make. And, 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 you know, in a context, you know, well-manufactured, well-made, well-engineered, but soulless. And me and my aunt just looked at these you know, they were mostly made of laminate plastic. They had fluorescent lighting. They had vinyl floors. And, and for me, as a person coming from this kind of slightly bohemian background, I, I just thought this is not the kind of place where people really want to live. I mean, the reason, the reason I'm asking that, the reason I'm concentrating on that now is that was 40 years ago. Mm. And what you just described there couldn't, wouldn't necessarily be that far off. Well, I think there's some truth in Today. that. I think there's some truth in that. I mean, I, are we still fixated with fitted kitchen? Um, we don't use the terminology in the same way anymore. The word fitted certainly is, is not, is not a, an exciting word to use. You do not want to use that word. What's, ha- what's happened is there's there another secret kind of, I don't want to say a battle going on, but a, an interesting conversation with architects. And if you look at innovation from architecture, particularly, say, the early, um, well, say Frank Lloyd Wright, early arts and crafts architects, they actually built everything in because they were control freaks. Now, when I stand up in front of an audience of architects today, they hate it, but they sort of have to acknowledge it. They, if you have an architect designing your kitchen, it will be, you know, most likely 
fit in, into the architecture. Now, there are some arguments for that. But as I started to, to, to um, my exuberance started to then, was then followed by really strong attempts at self-examination and trying to link it to understanding through psychology, through neuroscience, I began to be aware of not what only what I was doing, but what my customers wanted and how they wanted to respond to living in these kitchens. Because that's what's happening now. Mm. Kitchens are not just a place where you cook. In fact, the phrase I use, they are living rooms in which you cook. We need to face into the room. We need to talk about sociability. We need to talk about the user experience. Sorry, these are, I know there's a bit of jargon here, but yeah. it's true. In my first year studying architecture, I read an extraordinary book by um, a guy called W.R. Gregory. He wrote a book called Eye and Brain, I as in E-Y-E. And he said, peripheral vision performs a major role in how you, you move around space. And peripheral vision links with your flight and flight response mechanism. So in other words, if you walk past objects in the middle of a room, or anywhere in the room with sharp corners, it will trigger off a tiny little, tiny little bit of fear. And that disrupts your normal everyday brain working. And I only discovered this much later on, but what I'd been doing with soft geometry was a response to that. And now it's really interesting because if you look at, say, trying to make a kitchen wheelchair friendly, why are people using sharp corners everywhere? Well, I guess this is kind of the point, isn't it? Because the, the, the arguments that you were putting forward 40 years ago, and obviously you moved into the, the unfitted kitchen, which is the next <laughs> stage of things, you could still be having a lot of these arguments today, aren't you? Yeah. You've been fighting the fight for 40 years in that in that sense. And a lot of the sort of sociological trends, the neuroscience trends that you're talking about, they're still pretty radical in terms of the application to kitchen design in, in many ways, aren't they? Yes, I think they are. But um, I think there is a kind of basic awareness. I mean, it was really interesting about soft geometry because I... Well, just explain, explain yes, what soft geometry is and how you okay. arrived at that conclusion. This is the idea that when you, you walk around a room, um, you should walk around free of having to trigger off kind of um, uh, spiky objects. But most important of all, you should enjoy being able to walk easily. And you can, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to work out why that is. Now, the argument against it is it's expensive to make curves. But now we have CNC router and, and, and uh, computerized manufacturing. Actually, that's not quite the case anymore. So that's the, the, the major argument. The other thing that's really interesting is if you um, have, a, say, a, an oval central island or circular central island, and you also match somehow the shape um, and the easiness, the easiness of the movement on the pieces of furniture around the edge of the room, you can actually increase uh, the amount of work surface and reduce the corridor space. Funny enough, this idea works really well in small spaces, not just in big ones. In fact, particularly well in areas where you're walking around a room a lot of the time. So there's quite a good ergonomic argument for it. And what I would really say is that um, although I'm, I love the idea of the, the looks of soft geometry, really for me, it's more with ergonomics. Now, when I first did my own kitchen, what I thought was really interesting was the way that it really, really works. I've tested it out myself. Mm. And you can, so you really can increase the size of, of things in the middle of the room, which is slightly contradictive in some ways to what I'm saying. So that was that took a long time to be really discovered. Now, the Italian furniture industry were the first people to really uh, productionize this. And th that took about 10 or 15 years after I launched the Unfitted Kitchen. Well, I, mean, I suppose it goes, it flies against the modular aspect of how most kitchens, the volume kitchens are made. They are made in standard sizes to fit standard appliances. Well, I'm not sure it does because, I mean, if you think of, if you have curved modules, you solve the problem. I mean, I, I realize that my curves can often be, you know, different diameters and radiuses, but so I don't, I, no, I don't think that's the case. So take a step back a little bit, because the other bit, the other thing that you are incredibly well known for is that unfitted kitchen, which, and the reason I'm bringing it up again is because it all, it all 
ties into the same theme of trying to go against the norm. Oh dear, are you finding me out? <laughs> well, because at the time, of course, you, you the, the fitted kitchen, and again, no one really uses that term anymore, but the fitted kitchen was becoming the norm after a 20-year period of, of, of kind of development. And you came along and said, hang on a minute, let's go back to things before yes. that. So yes. you, you were being quite yeah. sort of retro. In yeah, those yes, days, I, I think there's absolute truth in that. I think there's some... I don't have any need to blow away the past. I think what you want to do is kind of work on on with the past. And I think if you look at people's kitchens and the way they often used to really love them, we identify with objects. I was saying this to students last night. They're not just physical things that uh, are cold and, and functional. They have a, a real dimension. And you've only got to read to some of the wonderful sociology of objects to see that's true. So I suppose what I'm doing is picking up on all sorts of things from nostalgia right the way through to you know, personal objects that you love. I think nostalgia is really interesting because, you know, if you take away, strip away that kind of top layer, uh, you've got access to all sorts of incredible visual, spatial design ideas that are wonderful to mine. I've always loved the idea of, of thinking of the kitchen as something more than just a room with lots of cupboards in it. You know, that's yeah. really at the core yeah. of what you do, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's a lovely thing to be able to do, and that's why I really love doing kitchens. Because um, you can work as a furniture designer, as a product designer, as an architect, as a carpenter, as a fitter, um, as just a person who absolutely loves cooking and wants to be in there. Now, if you don't provide the right kind of environment, people don't stay in their kitchen. So my big thing would be to have somebody stay in the kitchen for eight hours a day, mm. <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> well, look, let's, 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 let's look at how you apply this practically, right? So if someone comes to you and says, I would like a kitchen, please, Johnny, what's your process? What, what do you, where do you start with them? Obviously visit their house. Um, and I think I'd, my first job would be to act a bit like a mirror. I'd, I'd hold up ideas which would challenge, deliberately challenge perhaps what they wanted. And I think I'd look at the space first. I'd look at the actual room and see what the opportunities are and see whether the room connects to the garden, to other rooms in the house, whether the space to have a table, whether the table could be in the arc of sunlight. And then I'd try and work out, and this is the courtesy of Kevin MacLeod, where the sweet spot is. Mm. That's for the ladies. For the guys, it's the driving position <laughs> where you've got perhaps space to have a, an island or a peninsula in a smaller room so clearly there's not going to be space for an island but ideally with your back uh, to the sink and a window but if that's not possible you adapt it so i think I, that's why this co the course we run here at bucks uni is really about probably more about spatial design than anything else we can't necessarily engineer all our products that's fine so are you are you one of those designers who starts off by getting to know them getting to know what their hobbies are their their lifestyle their children their dogs their, their yeah art? if you can i mean it depends really on the circumstances but yes it's fun that's kind of how you react and that's by the way how you make how you, if, if you want to be commercial about it that's how you make a sale so what's the next step then? Do you sketch it by hand? Are you a pencil and paper guy? What, what? Yeah, well, well, what we do is we charge a fee because we like to do three different ideas. And I suggest to the students here, never show them one idea and never show a CAD drawing first. If you do a CAD drawing, just for spatial reasons, that's absolutely fine. Just sketch a bit on a piece of trace paper. Go with a sketch. Don't go with a fixed result because it's rather like reading a novel. If, if a boring novel is one where you've got no room for your imagination, what you want to do is to go to the client with a sketch where they can see possibility. And you'd be surprised how well that works and how much they love it because they feel involved. Where in that process do you charge the money? 
Like right, right from the beginning, you say there was a design fee. Uh, they get one free visit with it, in, right. in my case, within the, the M25. And then I just charge them expenses if I have to go to Scotland or wherever it is. Right. You've done kitchens all over the world, so that's... <laughs> you, can't, you can't do everything for free. I mean, yeah, when you go there first time, you can certainly make, give them some ideas to think about. Yeah, it's not about being mean. It's just purely about being pragmatic. Mm. You know, you've got to pay staff and studio time, so... And how sort of collaborative are you with that client? I mean, do you, how much do you stick to your guns with them? Because you have a very distinct well, look and a very well, distinct that's, that's concept. That's part of the fun. So, yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So the reason we try to do three ideas is one will be a very safe idea and probably the one the client thinks they want. <laughs> one will be a much, will be, will be my idea of an absolutely kind of, you know, full-on Johnny Gray experience yeah. and one will be a compromise. But what's lovely about this whole thing of it partly being unfitted is the way that you can mix and match. So the client will then look at these three ideas and they say, have a bit of this, a bit of that, and that. And I'll say, that's fine, but you can't do that. Or this is good, but let's do this. And then they, then they will say, okay. And then we do much more detailed drawings. The most important thing is we do drawings that are good enough to send off to our furniture makers for a costing. And at the same time, we do a hand-drawn visual. Right. And they get that's what they get. And in theory, if they because they pay a fee, they own... They actually don't own copyright to make it, but they own enough to be able to take it to somebody else and say, rip Johnny Gray off, we don't like him. <laughs> or we love Johnny, but he's a bit expensive, can he cut the price? Or in some cases, what's really nice is even when a client is tight on the budget, and often in building projects, as we know, there are other things to pay for, which unfortunately go overpriced, is you can, we can do it in stages. What's interesting about you is, and there are very few people where this applies, is that people are coming to you for a certain thing. They want to add Johnny Gray well, kitchen. No, you'd be no one's going to put a, a thing in front and say, I'd like be, I want a big square German kitchen, please, Johnny, could you uh, design You'd it? be surprised how really? um, some people haven't really... Um, I think they, they may have heard about me from a friend. Yeah. Yes, there's a sales process involved, or rather a participation. It's not just me having a nice time, sadly. <laughs> Sometimes it is. And that's wonderful. It's, it's really wonderful. Would you, you, would you ever walk away from one? No, thought, no not, not unless, I mean, uh, I mean, I, this sounds very heavy, but I have worked for some people who've got not a very nice background. I've, I've worked for sort of people who've got a criminal edge to them. <laughs> then I might try and walk away. Although sometimes you don't spot that. You get people who don't pay you. And I'm, I'm very sorry to say that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, that is, the is there a design compromise too far? There might be. And usually the client will decide they can't work with me. I think it's not really my choice. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Occasionally, yeah. I mean, because even the most esoteric designers have to deal, as you say, with the, it's yeah. a, at the end of the day, it's a sale, isn't it? It, it is, you know, and, and but it's also being able to know that you, you're going to work for this person for nine months. You know, having a kitchen store is really intimate. It really, you know, as we all know, I mean, mm. it's, it's not just a sale. So you want to be comfortable with them. I also have problem clients, you know, things aren't just easy to install, especially, you know, easy kitchens aren't easy to install anyway, but I'm, I'm probably no better than the other anybody else. But hopefully, when it's all said and done, um, if you get that far, then it's really wonderful. So let's bring things up to date a little bit, because outside of your own actual, clearly, your practice of designing kitchens, you, you've sort of become a slightly elder statesman of... Uh, yeah, it's really... Uh, awesome. And of, Andrew, of I must say, I mean, and, and don't blush too much, but, you know, you have really helped in that process. And one of the, 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 the biggest moves we've made here is... I'm sorry, I've made and the studio have made has been looking into uh, multi-generational design. Or, and you introduced me to yeah. Professor Peter Gore, and that's 
basically about to go live now in a very big way. Well, let's, let's just explain what that is. So there is a, what's the official title? Centre of Ageing? Okay. Newcastle um, there. What happened was Newcastle University had links with the NHS and has mm. a huge medical research centre into ageing, which was set up by, I think, about 10 years ago. Professor Peter Gore was brought on board because he runs a, a business which basically goes into people's homes and looks about how, looks at ways in which local authorities can pay for people to have modifications done which will allow them to stay. Um, and we know that the, the last the thing that gets you into a care home when you're um, old, really old, really really old, is when you can't cook for yourself. And your average life expectancy, if you're taken out of your home in those circumstances, due to, it's basically due to psychological trauma, is four months. Mm. It's like a bit like a death sentence. Now, Newcastle has in it something like three, four hundred researchers, and their research doesn't really go anywhere because it's, it seems to not get out. So George Osborne, just before he left in his last autumn statement, he gave £50 million to turn the National Centre for Ageing, or the Newcastle Centre for Ageing, which he was just before, into the National Innovation Centre for Ageing. And that was a brilliant move. There's been match funding uh, from the EU, and I'm very pleased to say that this extremely expensive, rather wonderful building that looks like a bit like a kind of bread basket turned upside down, is opening in Newcastle in, basically to the public, in about, I think it's in March or April. And we're going to put into their workshop space a prototype multi-generational kitchen. We call it the 4G kitchen because that's an aspirational idea. It's not really for four generations. Well, it may, may be in the future, but right now it's for two and three generations. What I found fascinating about that at the time was all the discussion up to that point had been about quote-unquote disabled kitchens. Yeah, yeah. And really it was about for, for sort of special needs kitchens. But actually yes, what, that, yes. what that study was, was about looking at how the population as a whole is getting older, living longer, and how spaces communal spaces like kitchens within the home should be able to be used by people of any age and any physical it's ability but it, it, <clears throat> equally it's about whether you're short tall you know whether you have problems with your feet your legs your eyes your ears whatever that may be and that's what's fascinating about it and you've been working very very close with them well i must give absolute credit to peter core it was his vision to uh, and uh, sorry patrick bond who's the director to try and change the language around disability design and instead of using the word accessible design, which is fine, uh, we talk about multi-generational because it's much more inclusive, which is actually another word they use. And the way we've managed to, to help the language get changed was uh, through a very clever vehicle. Um, the Royal Society of Arts do these student design challenges, which have they been doing for 96 years. And these go; these are, are briefs are written by um, the RSA and by others that go into the third year uh, students' curriculum of, of any student studying basically anything at university in their third year. Mostly it's design, architecture, product, and engineering students, but it could be anybody. And we decided we'd write a brief on sort of multi-generational kitchen design. And we, and the kitchen industry it stepped up. Uh, we raised 30,000 pounds to do this. I wrote the first brief two years ago, which was called um, Eat, Share, Live. And we had an incredible response from students around the world. We had, we think about a thousand students did this brief. And these are, don't forget, these are students who are going to be going straight into jobs the following year. So they will take this skill. This will be their main project they take to their employees and say, listen, I've done this. Do you know about it? So in theory, it's a fast track route to innovation. And uh, we've had some incredible designs. We've had some fascinating judging processes. And we did a second one last year, which um, I would say the kitchen industry also stepped up in a really good way. And then this year, we've slightly expanded it because I want to tell you a new story about how we can use kitchens. <laughs> Uh, and we had, we've just launched one, uh, and this is called Cultivating Community. So having had conversations with some very interesting people, who are architects who are designing these new concepts of basically residential care,
shared villages. And by the way, these not just these are not just in villages and, and, and in the countryside. These are actually now going to be in town centres. Legal and General, who financed this brief, have got five companies now working on building some of these uh, residential. Uh, villages, uh, and they spotted this idea that we had, uh, well, in solving a problem. And the problem is that you've got uh, people often living in these residential um, apartments, and they don't re they don't really get out enough, and, and some of them don't really want to cook very much. So we had this idea: how could we use food? How could we use the kitchen as a kind of anti loneliness, but in a more in a more positive way, in a kind of like a, a new kind of village hall? And we're calling these co-kitchens now. Mm -hmm. Co-working, as we all know, is now quite popular. Um, there are even now co-living apartment blocks being built in, I think, 16 cities. And I've been to see the kitchens, and believe you me, they're laughable. So we need some new thinking here. And the new thinking basically is that we use um, a co-kitchen to have people come in and be able to uh, have a very flexible space, which, which can allow people to perhaps cook for themselves, under supervision, or rather with assistance, um, to be cooked for, to be able to access food and be able to work, to put on events, poetry evenings, um, and bring their families or just be on their own. So, and so it's a really big challenge, this. Let's see what kind of results we get. Because I want to have the kitchen now as not as a public space, but almost as what I would describe as a third place. Mm. Now, a third place is a, as a concept developed by a guy, um, an American sociologist called Ray Oldenburg. And he had this idea that, that, that American democracy and American life was really enhanced by places which were not home, not work, but more like a cross between a sort of cafe, a library, um, village hall. And these have disappeared in suburban America. So he um, wrote this as a kind of vision for a different kind of space where you can come for perhaps no reason, for no particular reason, or you can just come, because, you know, because you need some company or because you want to have a friend, you've got a friend with you. So all, this this is all brilliantly conceptual, classic Johnny Gray stuff, which is great, <laughs> right? But what I'm wondering is if somebody's listening to this and they are a kitchen designer who works in a, in a showroom, uh, how do they apply this stuff to what they're doing? What's, okay. the, what's the sort of practical application? Okay, well, going back to the multi-generational kitchen, at Legal in General has said to me, they've got an order for 3,000 of these right away. So there's serious business here. That's number one. When we're talking about the co-kitchen, I suspect that the kind of spaces I'm talking about will be something that is a real business opportunity for kitchen designers. Now, I'm aware they're not bog-standard kitchens, but it is basically creating spaces and places and cabinetry around food. And all the appliances that we need to go in there um, and make those spaces work will come from the kitchen sector and kitchen things. And if, as a profession or as an industry, we embrace that, we will get the work. Otherwise, it will go off to architects, it will go off to to other sectors. Builders. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, which brings us neatly into, into, into what we're doing here today. Give me the sort of brief synopsis on how this whole thing has come about, how the how you've got involved with design degree and with Books Uni. Kevin McLeod that sort of probably finally kickstarted. We were doing some filming on a project we did in Bath and we went off to the pub for lunch and I just was ranting off about how poor kitchen design was, generally speaking. And he, he said, John, if you're so smart, you do it. You, know, you write the course. He said, and I'll give you a platform. So at a Grand Designs Live event about five years ago, he organised, I think you were on the panel, weren't mm -hmm. you, uh, a chance for each of us to say something for 20 minutes. And I um, spoke there and said, look, what we really need is a kitchen design profession. Because, you know, if you look at the phrase, for example, what's happened to the lighting industry, within 10 years, they've really stepped up. 
you now, you know, lighting design is an enormous business, but also a really useful and necessary one. Now, why should we be any different? But we need to professionalize ourselves. So anyway, he gave me the platform, and, and the um, woman in the audience was a, a professor of furniture here at Buxton Uni, where they hosted then the National College of Furniture. And they asked me to come and write a course, which we did together. Uh, and after a, a difficult start, we turned it into this blended learning course. So anybody, even when they're running their own business or they're bringing up a family or they live, can live anywhere in the country, can do an educational course, which is half the price of a standard university course, and study kitchen design. And, you know, the response that we get, well, you'll see today from the students is they love coming to these events. And the core of it is having peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning three times a year. So we do three days eating, living, breathing, thinking kitchen design. And they go away and they think about it and they have serious projects to do, but it really makes them think about kitchens in a much bigger way. And you've got a backing of a lot of the kitchen industry as well. And, you know, a lot of people have backed it, but I guess you're always looking for more, more support, aren't you? Well, I mean, I, in a way, I, when I say we've had good backing of the kitchen industry, I think if you talk to Craig Matson, who um, co-runs the Kitchen Education Trust with me, that the kitchen industry contributes to, he will find this year's response disappointing because we're just not getting enough support. Not so much in terms of money, but in terms of numbers. But we have plans. So it's, we've got some very exciting plans, one of which is we are in advanced discussions of turning this into an apprenticeship degree. And then I think you'll find that uh, the cost of it will go down. We'll probably get more numbers guaranteed. But we still need um, support, particularly in the belief that design can really give your workforce an advantage. And it brings not just um, good quality staff enjoying their jobs, but actually it brings commercial success. So and confidence as well. I it think. does. I mean, in a, in a way, I mean, this is back to sort of Johnny Gray being slightly kind of um, overly kind of enthusiastic about the idea, contribution ideas, but it gives them what I call cultural capital. And in sort of modern sort of parlance, that is probably really valuable. Social and, and, and uh, cultural capital. You go to a client and you, you, um, you're trying to sell them a kitchen and you don't start talking about, about a cabinetry in what you've just done. You talk about something that you've read that's really interesting about you know, some aspect of spatial design. Thank you very much for sparing your time with us today, Johnny. It's been really interesting. And I will go and sit at the back of some of these seminars in a minute and, and see how much I really don't know after writing that for 20 years. <laughs> well, join, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So that was our Special Achievement 2021 winner, Johnny Gray, speaking a couple of years ago. And his view of the industry is always so interesting, and his energy and enthusiasm for moving forward is really remarkable. So thank you and congratulations to Johnny. And don't you forget to enter the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2022. It's totally free, and all the details are at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. See you next time.